approach your throne in all humility. And Lord, we come to you seeking you right now. And we ask that your Holy Spirit come and grant us a biblical worldview, that you allow us to view the world through the lens of your word, that we would know in our hearts that Jesus is reigning from his throne right now, and that in the midst of turmoil, no matter where we're at, that everything is under his sovereign control. And because of that, Lord, we can rest, we can be at peace, and we can glorify you no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. We pray, Lord, that the Spirit would illuminate the truth of your word to us so that we might stand strong, that our confidence would be completely in you. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, it's been a while since we've been in Matthew's gospel. Therefore, it seems the first place to start is to reorient ourselves to where we are in the story. And I wish to do that by providing the overall context in Matthew's gospel and then narrow it down to the immediate context of the narrative this morning. And there are five major sections in this book. Each of those begins with a narrative of what Jesus did, followed by an extended discourse of what the Lord taught. And after the prologue of Jesus' birth, we first see him launch his ministry as he proclaimed that the kingdom of God was at hand in chapters 3 through 7. And within that section, Jesus described what type of kingdom it was and what the citizens of that kingdom looked like. And after that, we saw the expansion of power of the Lord's kingdom as, as not only in the way that he did mighty miracles, but also how he commissioned his disciples to carry his message out as well. This all occurs between chapters 8 and 10. And starting in chapter 11, we have the third section. Here we see Jesus teaching and preaching about the kingdom, and the focus now is on his person. Jesus is now inviting his hearers to come to him, to enter into the kingdom through him. For example, he declares in chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The choice becomes clear. You must not reject the Lord Jesus. If you would enter into the kingdom, it begins with turning to Christ. And as you can imagine, this doesn't sit well with the religious leaders. We begin to see the mounting opposition of these authorities toward Jesus. And that grows into our fourth section, beginning at chapter 14 and continuing through chapter 18. Don Carson calls this part the glory in the shadow. And I've mentioned, I like that because the glory of the Lord Jesus is being revealed to those who are willing to see. He is shining his radiant majesty as the son of God. And yet that glory will cause a cross-shaped shadow that awaits him in Jerusalem where he will suffer and die to redeem his elect. And in this section, those with Jesus and those against Jesus become even more distinct. They will polarize even more. That is the overall context. Today, we are in the middle of this fourth section, and our text this morning will demonstrate just how sharp that divide has become. But let me just take a moment to remind you of the immediate context here. In chapter 14, Jesus was in the region of Galilee conducting miracles of healing. And while there, he performed a stunning miracle where he fed nearly 10,000 people with just two fish and a few loaves of bread. And a little later, he traveled further north to the ancient city of Tyre where he encounters Gentiles. We see him free the daughter of a Canaanite woman from demon oppression in chapter 15. 
And then Jesus travels southeast down to the east coast of the Sea of Galilee into distinctly Gentile territory. And there we read of him performing similar miracles of restoration with the people there. The same type that he did among the Jews back in chapter 14. And to top it all off, at the conclusion of chapter 15, Jesus reproduces his miracle of feeding the masses with the Gentiles. It's absolutely amazing that Jesus is concerned for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. He has shown his compassion to all, healing and teaching about the kingdom. The glory that he is the Son of God is being revealed to those who would take notice of him. It's becoming plain to all, so much so that a little later here in chapter 16, Peter will boldly proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah based upon the evidence that he has witnessed. That is the immediate context of this morning's passage. And so we read in the last verse of chapter 15 that Jesus climbs into a boat and he crosses back to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, back into Jewish lands. And it's there that he is confronted with a delegation of Jewish religious leaders. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, if you will. That's page 821 of your pew Bible. Now, we're only going to have time to cover the the first four verses of chapter 16, but they are important as they're going to set the table for what Jesus has to say about these people a little later here in verses 5 through 13. But today, we need to focus on who these people were, what they were demanding from Jesus, and then our Lord's chilling response to them. These men challenged Jesus, but our Lord issues a challenge back to them. And it's a challenge that is still valid for us today. So what do we know about these men? Well, the text tells us this delegation is made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, I don't want to presume that everyone here knows what those terms mean, so I'm going to describe them just a bit. They were the names of the two main parties of Judaism in the first century. The Sadducees believed only the first five books of the Old Testament were Scripture. They did not think the rest of the writings constituted God's word. And as such, they had a philosophy that if you were obedient in the temple worship, then God would bless you presently in the material world, whether that was with wealth or political relationships or more children. They did not believe in an afterlife. Once your life was complete on the earth, that was it, game over. The Sadducees were were cozy with the Roman government and had control over the temple in Jerusalem. Having such a close relationship with the Romans and the Herodian kings, this assured their choice of who would be confirmed of high priest, thereby solidifying their rule. And as a religious party, they were more concerned about the power that they held than they were about observing the law or caring for the people. And in contrast to the Sadducees, you had the Pharisees, They believed that all of the books of the Old Testament were God's word. Therefore, they believed in an afterlife, a a resurrection of the dead with eternal rewards and eternal punishments. And because of this, they were meticulous in their observance of every facet of the law. And they wanted others to take notice of it as well. So they made these grand, extravagant public gestures to demonstrate their piety. Jesus makes mention of a few of these in the Sermon on the Mount. They would pray loudly before others. They they would fast and make sure you knew they were fasting by portraying how physically hard it was upon their bodies. They liked to give alms to the poor in front of others. They not only obeyed the law, but they came up with extra traditions to show others just how pious they were in going beyond God's commandments. And of course, they loved to point out 
where others were failing in their personal observances. These men tended to show up in the synagogues rather than the temple where they could teach their fellow Jews all of God's words, not just the law, but also the prophets and the writings along with their traditions. And because they did, they had massive influence upon the people. Both of these parties were represented significantly in the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. This was the council that governed most of the day-to-day activities of the people. It was a special concession to the Jews by the Roman government. And yet, because they had two different philosophies, they were diametrically opposed to one another, kind of like present-day Republicans and Democrats in our own political system. They rarely liked to work together unless it was beneficial to both parties. And here, at verse 1 of our text, our author Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, includes the definite article before the names, the Pharisees and Sadducees, which means this was one group made up of both parties, likely from Jerusalem, since that is where the Sadducees were based. And that means both parties perceived Jesus as a threat to their position, and they united in a common cause to confront him. They formed a coalition that traveled all the way up from Jerusalem to Galilee in order to challenge Jesus. And we see their purpose for confronting Jesus, as our English translations tell us, to test him. The word to test in Greek is the verb parazzo. Its cognates would be to try or to examine. It was a word used to examine something with the expectation of it failing. It would have been used by soldiers testing the metal of their swords or putting their horses through the paces to see if they could endure the hardships of travel and battle. Here, these men desire to test the Lord Jesus, thinking they can easily defeat him. Perhaps they were made aware of our Lord's miracles among the Gentiles. So they're going to ask for something even more from him to prove that he is divinely inspired at this point. And what they demand is for him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, this isn't the first time that such a request was made to Jesus. The the frustrated Pharisees of Galilee demanded the same thing from him in chapter 12, verse 38. And Jesus will respond here much like he did then. A sign was a supernatural confirmation from God. There are loads of them in the Old Testament. Sometimes these were miraculous and spectacular, and other times they were fairly ordinary. An example of the spectacular would have been like the very first rainbow that was given by God to Noah that he would never flood the entire earth in the same manner as he did. Or when Gideon wanted confirmation from God, he spread his fleece upon the ground, and overnight it it remained dry on the ground while the ground itself was wet with dew. Still, that wasn't enough for Gideon, so he did it again, and the next morning, the fleece was soaking wet that he could wring water out of it while the rest of the ground was bone dry. In 2 Kings chapter 20, Hezekiah the king, when he was ill, he wanted a sign from God that 15 years would be added to his life. And the Lord caused the shadows to move the opposite direction into the sunlight rather than away from it as a sign that his promise was true. Signs could also be somewhat ordinary, but still proof that God was present and active. Samuel poured oil over the first king, Saul, to show that he was the Lord's anointed. Not a spectacular, but effective sign nonetheless. We might consider what the angels told the shepherds at Jesus' birth. The sign was not fireworks or some flaming fire over the stable, but that the baby Messiah would be found in a manger and wrapped 
in swaddling clothes. When the shepherds found that, then they would know they had discovered the Savior of the world. But these men were not asking for an ordinary sign from Jesus or just a regular sign like back in chapter 12. They wanted something spectacular. They wanted a heavenly sign. Perhaps something like the day that the earth stood still that provided Joshua extra daylight in his battle back in Joshua chapter 10. Perhaps they were looking for something more like what's described in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath with fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellation will not give their light, and the sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Yeah, that's a good one. Do that, Jesus. Cause the entire earth to have no light in the skies, and then we'll believe that you are who you claim to be. They wanted Jesus to prove himself by doing the impossible. Give us a sign from heaven. And Jesus' response to them is simple, but it's brilliant. Verse 2. He answered them, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. Jesus uses a meteorological conditions as his illustrations here. An agricultural society would be very much aware of when it was about to rain. I was taught a simple poem when I was a child how this worked. Maybe you were taught it too. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Anybody else heard that one in there? Okay, I see a couple of head nods, so I know I didn't live in another universe, at least, when that happened. It taught me that if the sky was red in the morning, then then shepherds should know not to take their flocks out, lest they get caught up in a lightning storm. Taught me that a sailor could sleep easy if they saw a red sky at night before they went to bed. Simple weather signs. So Jesus says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Just like predicting weather, what was happening before them should have been plainly obvious. Men and women, boys and girls were being healed from their infirmities. The blind were now seeing, the lame were walking, the demon oppressed were freed from their captivity. Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven both to Jews and to Gentiles alike. Isaiah 61 foretold, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. It was crystal clear this was happening in Jesus' ministry. Messiah had come. All the evidence was before them already. And yet, instead of bowing the knee, this arrogant delegation wanted more from him. Give us a heavenly sign. Therefore, Jesus offers a challenge back to them. Verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. (laughs) He doesn't pull any punches here. They're asking for a sign. 
And Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Ipso facto, these Pharisees and Sadducees were an evil and adulterous generation. Why? Why adulterous? Because to commit adultery means you are unfaithful. You are making yourself the center of attention rather than God. You are telling God, you are here to serve me. Therefore, do my bidding and confirm that you are by doing the supernatural or doing miraculous gifts for my benefit. Jesus says, the only sign you're going to get is that of Jonah. It was the same response that he gave back in chapter 12, verses 39 through 41. And if you remember, I told you then, there's been a little bit of debate trying to narrow down which specific sign this is. Is the sign of Jonah being miraculously spit out of a large fish after being inside of it three days? If so, then this likely refers to Jesus' resurrection after being buried for three days. Or is the sign Jonah's proclamation of repentance to the Assyrians? Jonah preached to the Ninevites, and they believed him, and they turned from his wickedness. And as I said last spring, when we looked at chapter 12, I believe it's both. I think Jesus is referring to the man Jonah and his message. Just as I think he's referring both to himself as the divine man and the divine word of God. Word and person in Christ go hand in hand. There is one sacrifice, one death and resurrection, and that's all they will get. There's one message, one gospel, and that's all they will get. They will get nothing more because it is more than sufficient in those things. You either accept Jesus on the basis of who he is or you don't. He is not here to do your bidding. He is here to save you from your sins, something that each and every one of us are incapable of doing on our own. The Pharisees and Sadducees' response would be much like if you were trapped in a burning building and suddenly in the midst of the smoke, a firefighter appears to you and he's got his helmet on and his PPE and, and he says, I'm here to save you. And you respond with, okay, but before I go with you, would you please show me your credentials first? And, and while you're at it, would you mind sweeping up the room and tidying up a bit first before we leave? I'd, I'd hate for people to, to see how messy my house was after the fire is out. No, like the firefighter was there to, to do the imperiled's bidding like he could manage two agendas at that point. No, you'd leave all of your possessions and possibly run into the arms of your Savior saying, what must I do to be saved in that moment? I'm here to follow your directions. This delegation were arrogant fools. With all that he had done, it was obvious that Jesus was the Messiah. They should have been asking him, what must I do to be saved? We're told such was their opposition that Jesus got into a boat and he returned back to Gentile territory on the other side of the sea. We learn the location in verse 13. So he left them and departed, is what we're told. Jesus left, and none of the delegation followed the Messiah. Only the disciples followed. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, these religious authorities with their own agendas, failed to recognize the ultimate prize, the person of Jesus Christ. Now, before we conclude, we need to think a little bit about how this text should apply to us. And I have three observations here. First of all, this text warns us of presuming upon God. It warns us upon presuming upon God. God, God is not here 
to make much of us, we are designed to worship him and make much of him. Yes, the almighty God values us. That is demonstrated at the cross where Jesus takes upon himself the wrath that we deserve for the sins that we've committed against God. And and God the Father not only accepts that sacrifice of his only begotten, but he also imparts his Holy Spirit to regenerate us and live within us. But do not presume that he does so because he needs us. He does not. He saves a people unto himself for his own glory, not to treat us like spoiled children. Don't miss the point of the famous verses of grace by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as the results of work, so that no one can boast. And that's absolutely true, but we must not skip the very next verse after that, which tells us why we were saved. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saved us that we might glorify him. And yet often we place ourselves in the place of presuming upon him. I remember as a young man trying to barter with God. I would get into some kind of trouble or difficulty and I would pray, Lord, if you get me out of this, I promise I will blank. You could fill it in. I promise I will tithe more. I'll attend church more. I'll stop swearing. As if God somehow was obligated to me if I performed a certain action. Lord, if, if you'll enable me to pass this test that I didn't study for, I promise I'll read the Bible more. Such arrogance presumes upon the living God that A, we view him as some magic genie to do our bidding, and B, it assumes we don't owe him our all whether or not he chooses to act in a particular manner. He is the creator, we are the creature. It should stun us that he takes notice of us and cares about us at all. If you think God is here to serve you, then no wonder the God of your mind is so small when things don't turn out the way you want them to. The triune God is much bigger than our thoughts. He's doing much more than we're capable of understanding. A second application is that a desire for signs demonstrates a weakness of faith. A desire for signs demonstrates a weakness of faith. We mentioned this before back in chapter 12. We want signs from God to either affirm or confirm a choice we make. But he gives us something so much better than that. He gives us his very word. He gives us his promises in fact, I want to show you what I mean. God cannot lie. Turn, turn with me, if you can, to Exodus chapter 3. God can't lie. His promises stay forever with us. But you can see this. This is the famous scene here where the calling of Moses is occurring to lead the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. And this story shows how asking for signs actually demonstrates a weakness of faith here on Moses' part. At this point in the story, Moses had fled Egypt because he had murdered a man, and now he's hiding out as a shepherd in the wilderness thinking that his career is done. And God speaks to him through a burning bush. And we see here in verse 7, by the way, this is on page 46 of your pew Bible if you want to join along with us. Verse 7, then the Lord said, 
I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. The compassionate God of the universe takes notice of his suffering people, and he's going to do something about it. And here's what he's going to do. Verse 10, come, I will send you, you Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Notice that God told Moses what he was going to do, but, but Moses needed a little more confirmation So God provides him here with a sign. Verse 12, and he said, but I will be with you. And this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. And here's the sign. I almost have to chuckle a little bit here. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on the mountain. The sign is once you're back here worshiping with my people, then you will know you will have succeeded in getting my people out of Egypt. It should be enough that God says, I said it, so shall it be. Still not enough for Moses, though. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, God's going to reply with his name, which is his authority, but he will reveal to Moses his exact plan of what he's going to do. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Now note this, he expects what Moses is going to proclaim, the words of God, to be enough to convince the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together, and you say to them, Moses, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this is amazing. God is telling Moses, go tell the people my words, the words of I am. That is sufficient, and they will believe you. Verse 18, and they will listen to your voice. You and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go on three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. And unlike the people, Pharaoh will not listen to God's words. Verse 19, but I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Then when you go, you will not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. God said it. And that should be sufficient. But if you keep on reading in the next chapter, Moses still thinks he needs some special supernatural powers to convince everyone. No, you don't need that. 
Just trust God at his word, even when he gives you a monumental task to struggle or to endure through something. You don't need a sign. You just need his promises. When he says, lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the earth, we can bank on that. His promises never fail, no matter what situation that he puts us in for his own glory. Even in Paul's day, he had to put up with people wanting signs. He, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. And by wisdom here, he means they want all knowledge about a situation. How is it going to turn out? For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. God gives us his word, and it is enough. Folks, the gospel is sufficient. We don't need special revelations. We don't need to chatter in special languages. We don't need miracles to know that we are in God's will. The word of God is sufficient. And when he says that he will carry you through the pain or help you to persevere, we, we want some sign to confirm that he is with us rather than just trusting by faith. And most times the signs we want is for the struggle to end. But that would defeat the purpose of faith. I said this in the sermon in chapter 12, but I'm going to repeat it again. In every facet of life, God wants us to exercise good discernment and judgment and by faith obey his teachings from his word no matter what the circumstance. Perhaps even now you're looking for a sign. You're saying, Lord, give me a sign if I should approach that friend that I'm angry with. Well, here's your sign, Matthew 5, verses 23 through 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If, if you're a Christian contemplating leaving your Christian spouse, here is your sign, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. If you're trapped in a habitual sin and you're looking for a sign if you should speak to someone about it, here's your sign, James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We already have the evidence of Christ's resurrection power to make all things new. We don't need more signs. We need faith and obedience to act on what we've been given already. Be cautious of desiring signs. I get a little frustrated with my Christian friends that are obsessed with the end times looking for signs of this or that. Oh, Blair, such and such sign is being fulfilled right now. Well, I'm not sure how that would change my approach to the Lord's return. We should be living every day for the Lord exactly like today is all the time we have regardless of whether or not tomorrow comes. Lord could take you home like that any moment. You need a sense of urgency? There it is. The Bible tells us we're to be persecuted as believers in Christ, and we must prepare to endure. The Bible promises that Christ will return to claim us. The Bible tells us this world will be ashes, and a new redeemed one will replace it. 
I fail to see how looking for signs changes how I am to live in this moment based upon those promises. Now, today, this moment is the day of salvation. If you're waiting for a certain sign to occur before you get real with God, then you certainly are revealing a weak faith right now. Get right with him today. And finally, we must not lose the main thrust of this passage here. Jesus expected the Pharisees and Sadducees to act based upon what they knew of him already. He has provided plenty of evidence that he is who he claims to be, Messiah, Savior, very God himself. And that same challenge is for us today. If you have your eyes open and you see this glorious Savior, then you come to him. You, you place your faith in him. You make him your Lord. And what you're going to discover is a king who became just like us in order to save us. A king who willingly gave his life on the cross as a perfect sacrifice to redeem you from all of your sinfulness. A king that literally wants the best for you. A king who will in no way cast you out if you humble yourself and you come to him and you say, I need you. Not need you because I want you to fix this or not need you because I need you to make this situation right first. Not that I need you and I need more signs about it, but to say, I need you. I need you. As the, the Bible says, the fitness, or the old hymn says, the fitness that is required, all that's required is your need of him. That you recognize, I've got to have Jesus and this king who is already proclaimed, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will welcome you with open arms that you can fall into and you can find real peace. Real peace. Don't, don't do what these Pharisees and these Sadducees did. Don't be arrogant. Don't, don't be stubborn. Don't put yourself to be in a place where Jesus leaves without you. But instead, bend the knee. Follow him. Cling to him as though he is life yourself because he is. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the word, the word that reminds us that Jesus Christ is sufficient when he tells us that our sins have been paid for based upon his action on the cross, his atonement, that is sufficient. He never lies. We can trust in it. We can bank in it. We can live our lives in light of that. When he tells us that he is ruling and interceding for us on high, then, Lord, we can bank on that. We can trust in it. Oh, Lord, let the foundation of the truth of this word permeate our worldview, everything that we're seeing right now, knowing that Jesus Christ sits upon the throne. And because of us, our confidence is in him, not in our own abilities, but in him. Not in our government, but in him. Not in any type of medical practices, but always in him. Because, Lord, we know that Christ is sufficient. Allow your Holy Spirit to teach us that truth and allow us, Lord, to rest in it. We pray this in the completed work of Christ alone. Amen.